Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. This year we continue in our series of sermons celebrating the Reformation. 500 years ago, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church over in Germany, and it was a thesis was an arguing point. So Martin Luther was saying, I have this against you. And he was saying that to the church. He was saying that to the Pope. He was saying that to Tetzel selling the indulgences. Inside the church, Martin Luther was saying, I have these things against you. And he had 95 of them. And now we are about to hit the, 90, the 500th anniversary of him putting those 95 theses up, all right? And so we're going to take a number of weeks, and we're going to go through things at that time that were wrong that the Reformation changed. We're Protestants, Protestants, we are protesting. The word Protestant comes from thesis, right? Not really, but it does. He had 95 protests, and we're Protestants, Now, what was the first one? The first one was when our Lord Jesus commanded us to repent, he was teaching us that the life of a Christian is a life of repentance. When our Lord Jesus said, repent, he was teaching us that our lives are to be lives of repentance. (coughs) Excuse me. And when I live my life and I know you, I get to know you, I listen to you, I talk to you, I love you, I often notice sweetly that people in this church interpret their lives through repentance. And so soft hearts, when something happens that's difficult, they say, what is God rebuking me, admonishing me, disciplining me for? Immediately our response is, I deserve this, but specifically what is God doing to me and why and how, right? Whereas proud souls say what? Well, they say, I don't deserve this, and what gives him the right? And, you know, we try not to talk about God, but that's always who we're talking about. That's why in Hebrews it says, don't let the root of bitterness corrupt many, you know. Bitterness is always God, but we generally don't ever mouth it towards God. We, we act as if there's somebody in between God and us that's obstructing God, Somebody is keeping God from pouring the blessings out on us that we really know we deserve. I keep thinking of the smiley guy in Houston. You know, it's this big cheesy grin, you know? We should get a pastor that smiles all the time. Do we have a search committee? So what I want to do this week is I want to say, look, if the first of the 95 theses is when our Lord Jesus says, repent, he is teaching us that the life of a Christian is a life of repentance, then what should characterize Protestants is repentance. What's the sense? 
of honoring Martin Luther if we don't repent. But I want us to think a little bit carefully about how it is we go by avoiding repentance, okay? So the text for this morning is this. It's 1 Peter 4.17. Let me set the picture. Peter's written to a group of Christians who were suffering persecution for their faith. They were being killed. They were losing their jobs. They were losing their families. They were bruised and hurting because of their Christian faith. And so Peter just keeps saying, stand firm in your faith. Don't give up. Don't look at these fiery trials as if there's something unusual. This is what Jesus said would happen to us. Stand firm, stand firm, stand firm. And then in the middle, he says this one verse, which is our text this morning. He says, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And this is the word of the Lord. Now I want us to focus on this phrase in here. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. That's, that's the center of our text. It is time for the judgment to begin with the household of God. And he goes on and he says, and, and if God is this intense with us, do you have any idea how he's going to deal with pagans? That's the second half of the verse, all right? And so he's speaking to Christians. And how do we know he's speaking to Christians? Well, because he says, the household of God. What's the household of God? It is the place where God's sons and daughters reside. It is the home, the family of God. It's the church. So it's, it's sons and daughters of God. That's the household of God. And so he says what? It says, he says, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And so what we learn here is that the judgment of God begins where? It doesn't begin with Harvey Weinstein. It begins with us. Only when Harvey is, is being treated mercifully by God does he get his comeuppance in this life. Most of the wicked, God fattens for the day of destruction. And they only get fatter and richer and prouder as they go through life. Because God's fattening them up for destruction. So think of Harvey as having a wonderful gift. But God's people are always given this wonderful gift. And what is the wonderful gift? It's persecution and judgment. And you say, well, wait a second, it can't be judgment. I believe in Jesus. I've been washed in his blood. I escape judgment. And I say, no, you don't. Because why? Well, because it says right here, judgment to begin with the household of God. And you say, well, it's not condemnation. And I say, yeah, that's right. It's not condemnation. It's judgment. And you say, but I can't be judged. I say, hey, it says it right here, household of God, judgment. So in what sense do we get judgment from God? We get judgment in the sense that we get our just desserts. And all of you know this is true. You're going through your life and you're watching what happens to you. And then all of a sudden, whop! And you go, what? I didn't deserve that. No, if you're a Christian, you go, I deserve that. I'm just real happy it was just a slap in the face instead of a kick in the rear. 
You see, Christians have a posture that we go through life in knowing that we have escaped the wrath of God. And so when Christians are persecuted, when we're slandered, when we're mocked, when we are oppressed, when we fall down and break our leg, everything that happens to us, we interpret it biblically. And we think to ourselves, oh yeah, it says judgment will begin in the household of God. But that's not what we do, is it? That's not what we do. We don't have a natural inclination to interpret the difficult things that happen in life as God's love. We think that God's being obstructed, that wicked people are standing between us and God and they're turning everything he meant for our good to our evil. And it's an entirely faithless way to live life. Why don't you see your suffering as God's gift? Why shouldn't Christians who follow the one who took up his cross have the perfect understanding of crosses? But instead what we think is that God should be just as disgusting as our grandpa. The only helpful thing he ever did to us was give us sugar. You know, little pieces of candy, there, there, nice, nice. You know, you never see my grandchildren come over and sit beside me, and that's because I have candy in my pocket. You know, that's why, that's why Daniel came over and sat next to me. And so when we, when we worship God and we call him the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, when we worship him, we think that the bargain is that we worship him and he gives us candy. And then when we suffer, we think, hey, I didn't sign up for this, but Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. And we say, well, yeah, I know. I mean, theoretically, hypothetically, you know. Yeah, I mean, okay. You know, should, should Jesus take up his cross alone? You know, should Jesus suffer? Yeah, yeah, I'm on board with that. But this, this, this is because my wife is a rebellious woman. And I'm going to whoop her. I mean, not physically, but you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to win. That's what I mean, okay? By the way, my wife isn't. My wife is perfect, just like Zebra, Okay. Where's John Klug when I need him, you know? <laughs> oh, that was one of the funniest things that ever happened. <laughs> so when your parents make a mistake in their discipline of you children, do you look at that mistake as being the failure of your parents and at the same time see it as being God's kindness to you? You know, is our suffering under the sovereignty and authority of God? Has God given us the husband that we have? Yeah, I know he's a pill. I remember at a former church one Sunday saying, you know, I was talking about how women have such trouble 
accepting who God gave them to be their husband. And I actually said, but you don't know my husband. My husband's an ass. And oh, did I hear it that next week by all the men that were furious with me for, for, for not, for not. No, of course, that's not who I heard it from. I heard it from all the women who were offended that I'd used the word ass in the pulpit. <laughs> what they couldn't face was the fact that their husband was an ass, actually. <laughs> you know, generally men are, especially viewed through a woman's eyes. So who gave you that husband to be married to? You say, well, I, I, it's like Mary Lee after we got married. Mary Lee looks at me and she says, I didn't marry this person. <laughs> you know, a lot of us have said that after we got married. Yeah, I didn't marry. I did. But I know Mary Lee didn't. It was false advertising, you know. <laughs> <laughs> And so we look at who we marry, we look at who our parents are, we look at our sins, we look at sicknesses and diseases, we look at our defects, we look at our job situation, we look at where we live, we look at all the things in our lives that we don't like, and despite Jesus' Calling us to repentance, despite Luther saying that the life of a Christian is to be a life of repentance, every single individual opportunity that we have that God gives us to repent, we refuse. We won't do it. You know, you think about Martin Luther saying that the life of a Christian is to be a life of repentance, and you think, yeah, right? We're all on board, hypothetically, you know. We're all like, yeah, yeah, you know, repentance is good, right? Everybody's with me, right? But then, if I say to myself, repent, what do I say to myself? I say, bug off. Even if inside me I go, you should repent, I say, no, I shouldn't. (laughs) Even when nobody else is talking. I just have these conversations in my mind. Repent. No! (laughs) And then if somebody else comes to us and says, repent, we say, no! And then we add, and who do you think you are? So yeah, the life of a Christian is a life of repentance. No! (laughs) So look, repentance is scandalous, right? Why? Well, because we all have a higher view of ourselves and we ought. We all think that we're the one person that really should direct others to repentance and not ourselves. (laughs) So let me give you a clue. You know what it's like to be in an elders meeting? It's to see sin everywhere, starting with the pastor. Right. This last week I was explaining to the, uh, the pastor's college students who get to sit in elders' meetings and keep their mouths shut, generally. Although David this week, I mean, or no, Joe. Joe, it was Joe. He just spoke. 
So they sit in a row behind us, right? And, and they listen, and they listen to us fight, right? I mean, that's what you do in meetings generally, you know, you, you're married, you know what happens. Now, this is what happens in an elders meeting. Elders meetings are not clean, okay? Everyone there is what? A sinner. And so elders meetings make good decisions as men sin against each other and the people of the church. And that's as high as you can say it about elders meetings, okay? God is pleased to use sinners. You vote us into the office of chief sinners. And then we, knowing how superior we are to all of you, (laughs) sit in a meeting and make judgments. And it never occurs to us that we sin the same sins that the people we're rebuking are going to be rebuked for. Because fortunately, the people that you elect to be elders aren't sinners. Right? And it's especially helpful to me to get into the pulpit, and I have a manuscript here with supporting documents, and I have the Word of God. You know, Charles Stanley, you know. And it's so nice to not have any sins. And it's so nice afterwards if you come up to me to correct me or to plead with me or to show, show me my error. It's so, it's so nice for me to know. Now, I'm being facetious. Tongue firmly embedded in cheek. This is all a joke. But it's so nice to know that you can't come up to me and say anything critical of me that will stick because I'm the senior pastor. And it just makes me able to live above you all, which is, of course, the whole point of being a Presbyterian minister. (laughs) Right? Right? I mean, you all know this, right? And so what the church becomes is is a masterful scheme of nobody ever having to cop to anything. And yet, this is a Protestant church, and the first of the 95 theses is when our Lord Jesus commanded us to repent. He was teaching us that the life of a Christian is a life of repentance. And yet the church, the Protestant church today, has become the one place that you don't ever have to worry about anybody saying you're wrong or you're in sin. You go on Facebook and people don't hesitate to tell you it. (laughs) You know? They won't just say you're a sinner, they'll say you're a hater. But in the church, we all know each other's motives. And we all know that each other's motives are pure. You didn't mean anything by that. You know, no, I don't have to forgive you. Because that was, you didn't didn't sin against me. And, And by the way, I don't sin against you either. So keep your mouth shut if you think I do. And so we don't give, give, give forgiveness. We don't ask for forgiveness. And we certainly don't repent. Because the life of a Christian is, is anything but a life of repentance. And why are we doing this? Well, it's because we don't trust that God's a good father. And we don't believe that God gives us rebukes and suffering and defects and sickness and the loss of jobs, getting fired, you know, um, the wife that we have, the, the children that we have. We don't, we don't see any of that through the eyes of faith. 
we don't see it as God's kindness to us. As you get older, you tell stories because you order your life according to stories, you know? Oh, I'll never forget that. Oh, I'll never forget that. So my story, my placeholder for this is that there, in, in the former church, I had an elder who I wanted to work with. I loved the man. But I found out that every time the school year started, he'd go south. And he wouldn't come back until the new year. And when he came back, everybody was mad at me because I was preaching, right? <clears throat> and he would tell me again and again, he said, he, we'd go out to breakfast or lunch at McCree's, remember on the east side? And he'd say to me, Tim, you know, what you need to do is just Love people. In other words, don't preach, don't rebuke, don't admonish, don't correct, don't exhort with great patience. Don't do any of those things. Just love people. And then he would always say, and then people will come to know you and they'll just love you and then you can do anything you want. And every year, that's what he said to me. That's a direct quote. Okay? And finally, things went from... He would say bad to worse, I would say better to best. So that one year he came home and there was a perfect storm. And one of his very wealthy uh, single women friends had just defied the elders board in a congregational meeting. She just defied them. (laughs) They said, don't do this, and she stood up and did it. But she was wealthy, and she was dignified. And so... He came home that year, and of course, he caught it from her, and so did his wife. And so we went to McCree's. And we sat down, and he said, Tim, why don't you just love people? You know, a good father disciplines those he loves. Our heavenly father disciplines those he loves. What he meant by love is don't discipline. All right. He said, why don't you just love people, and then they'll love you, and then you can do whatever you want. Right? And he said, now, why did, you, why did you tell the elders that they needed to discipline this woman? He named her. And I said, well, I said, let's call him John, John Doe. I said, John, don't you think in a church of 600, that maybe... There's one person in a church of 600 that needs to be told no. One, just one. And he said, but Tim, and he named her, let's call her Jane. He said, but Tim, Jane's a Christian. And listen, that's a placeholder forever for me. Because I realized at that moment that that man thought that Christians were people that never needed to repent. Do you understand this? And I'm sitting there, my brain's going... And I looked at him and I said, John, when your daughter Susie rebelled against you and you spanked her... Did she turn and look at you and say, Daddy, I'm not a doe anymore? You know, his last name is Doe. You know, I'm not a 
you know, whatever his last name was. Did your daughter, when you disciplined her, say, I don't belong to you as my father anymore? And he got this confused look on his face and said, well, no. And I said, well, then why would we think that Christians aren't disciplined by God, let alone by the church? Aren't we here to rebuke and admonish and correct and exhort with great patience? Isn't that why we're here? That's what I'm called to do as a shepherd. Is that not why? And here's what he said. I said, did, did, did she say to you, but daddy, I'm not your daughter anymore. And he looked at me and he said this. He said, but Jane, you know, this woman, he said, but Jane is a nice person. And I knew right then that what had happened was social class had trumped God Almighty. Because what he meant by nice person is somebody that doesn't make an, uh, an idiot of themselves in public in Bloomington. Somebody with wealth, somebody with prestige. Are you all with me? And that person should never, never be admonished. Now, mind you, we, we weren't excommunicating this woman. All that was at stake was that somebody would go to her privately and say, the elders told you not to do it, and then you did it. Bad girl. You know? One of 600 people. <laughs> you know? But, oh, man, guess who really had sinned? Me. I was a sinner. And I was a sinner because I was denying the nature of Christian faith and God's fatherhood. I was a sinner mostly because I didn't understand who should be touched and who shouldn't in a church of wealthy people. Are you with me? So we have a principle in this church, and the principle is the richer you are, the more you get rebuked. You think I'm kidding. I'm not. We should be especially careful to rebuke the people who give lots of money. Right? I mean, come on. You're all with me, right? That's why you don't give lots of money, right? <laughs> you better not start. <laughs> oh, now you know all the thoughts that are in my brain while I'm living my life. <laughs> oh, man. Listen, we have, to, we have to look at everything in our life is coming directly from God. And we have to begin to love his discipline. We have to begin to love the fact that judgment with him begins with his children. And we have to see the things that are most difficult for us as his greatest kindness. You remember what my parents said, right? All their Christian friends would be offended for them when their children died. And they would say to their children, we have never been as certain of God's love for us as when we walk away from a fresh grave of one of our children. People, God is not surprised by what happens to us. It comes from him. It is his love, it's his mercy, it's his kindness. And once you begin to see your life as being God's mercy to you, then you'll think, well, why is his mercy me, you know, having a club foot? Why is his mercy me having a shrew for a wife? 
Why is his mercy me getting caught looking at pornography? Why is his mercy my children dying? And then, if we have the faith, we say, oh, I needed my children to die. Huh. Now, I did just say that. I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to talk about this in terms of hangnails? Well, that hangnail was so helpful to me. It reminds me, every time I feel the pain of my hangnail, (laughs) you know, this is so pathetic. No, let's deal with the death of children, okay? Let's deal with the death of children. When our children die, what are we reminded of? We're reminded, first of all, of God's love. Why? Because it's the only thing to cling to with our children when they die. The love of God, please, the love of God. Father, take them and keep them in your arms because I would have done a lousy job raising them if I'd had them permanently. And then we look at ourselves and we realize that we have put our children into the position of being idols to us. And we go, oh, no. And, and, and somebody else, a pastor who means well, or a chaplain at the hospital or the funeral home, he says, you have a right to be angry against God. And we go, angry? God has a right to take every one of my children. Are you kidding me? I have a right to be offended that God took my child? Shut up! I don't need your help! Because God is my God. He's my Father, and every discipline, every judgment, every pain that he gives me, I'm precious about it. Because why? Because it proves that I'm his son. There is no middle ground, people. You either live by faith or you live by unbelief. Either you trust that God is merciful and that the things you suffer are his kindness to you. Because like any father, he disciplines you for your perfecting, for your holiness. I was remembering this during the reading of the liturgy for the Lord's Supper, the first service, that... There's a guy named Stein, a professor of history here at the university, who did two papers that were fascinating and helpful to me in my former church, and they were papers that he wrote outlining all of the prayer requests given by the people in Jonathan Edwards' church. And the reason he was able to do the research is that Jonathan Edwards would write a lot of his sermons on the back side of prayer requests. So paper was expensive. So people would use a precious piece of paper to write down what they wanted the people of the church and the pastor to pray for them for. And so you can flip over the sermons of Edwards and on the back you can read what the people said when they asked for prayer. And the thing that just overwhelmed me was again and again and again their prayer request was that God will sanctify to me and to us the death of our beloved mother and my wife. That God will sanctify to me the death of my wife and three of my children. Because, of course, back then, dying was the main thing people did. They died, 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 died. 
And so it would be sickness, death, and they would always pray that God will sanctify to me the death of my beloved wife. Now, what does that mean? Well, what it means is <laughs> that God will give us faith to view the death of our wives as his kindness and that we will learn what he has for us to learn through it so that we will become more like his son, so that we will become more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We begin to look at death, let alone hangnails, and everything in between as God's fatherhood over us. Okay? Everything. Everything. There's no point being a Protestant if we don't do that. Because Martin Luther wrote as the first of the 95 theses, when our Lord commanded us to repent, he was teaching us that the life of a Christian is a life of repentance. And if God controls all things to conform to his will, don't you think hand nails are under his authority? And don't you think the death of our children is under his authority? I'll never forget. I have all kinds of stories of this kind of faith in this church, honestly. I'll tell you two of them. And, and it may be that what I should do is shut up and begin to have you people stand up and say how you have found this truth. As a matter of fact, I'm going to do that. Joe, come here. Yes, you. He's a captain in the Navy. He knows what it is to take orders. <clears throat> Would you come here? Come on up. Step up. And tell the congregation, tell the congregation what God did to you that humbled you and brought you back to him. Now, hold on. And he's just going to tell you the way he said it point blank to us. Just hold it. Go ahead. Tell him. Uh, several years ago, uh, I was taking some wood down my stairs, and uh, I got knocked down by God. It landed on my head, seven stitches. I was a mess. And uh, I was in the hospital. Couldn't control my bowels or anything else. I was dead. And Tim and uh, Max came to see me and made me swear that I would never drink anything again. It was like alcohol. Well, I was, I was, I was dead. I, 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 yes, sir, we'll never do that again. And I pray every day now that uh, I will not be uh, attempted to drink alcohol like I did in the Navy. You know, I, was, I, was, uh, I was on the bottom rung, and I just thank the church so much for uh, helping me and forgiving me for my sins during the time I've been here. Thank you. It's funny how people will remember things. I don't remember that. I don't think David remembers that. That's not the way we remember it. It's, it's, it's quite interesting. I saw David shaking his head now. What do you remember? Speak up. That was scary. I don't remember us telling 
That's right. Him swear That's anything. right. That's absolutely right. We came into Joe's room, and Joe said, God knocked me on my head down those stairs. And he said, I'm coming back to church. He didn't come to church. And Joe, from that day on, has been a godly man. If you want to know what Joe thinks of the person you're thinking of marrying, ask him. He's got good judgment. (laughs) And Joe has just been an absolute delight to us. Another one, Curtis is not here, right? Okay, I'm going to tell the one I told in the first service, which is I remember back at this former church, Curtis shows up, and he's, he's almost dead. We lay hands on him, anoint him, and he, Curtis had cancer three times as a young man. And I remember Curtis telling me that he was in his hospital bed close to death, and he said, as I lay there, he said, I was never that close to God. But lying on my back in that bed, I didn't ever want to lose my cancer because of what God accomplished in my heart through my cancer. So I told that in the first service, and right afterwards, Curtis came up to me and he said, pray for me, it's hard. Why? Well, he doesn't have cancer. That's why it's hard. You imagine being Donald Trump. You imagine how hard it is to be wealthy and have a beautiful woman and live in the White House and yeah, the media is a pain for him, but he's always got Twitter. <laughs> you know? You know. But you know, can you imagine being Donald Trump and saying, Make America great again? And you know doggone well that what he means by make America great again is not for America to humble herself and fall on her knees and confess her wickedness before God. And that is what would make America great again. If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves. And this isn't a political statement. I'm just looking at the world, right, with biblical eyes. I have been reading the last couple of weeks an essay on Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War written by Charles Hodge, a professor of theology at Princeton, a great hero of many of us. And Charles Hodge goes through slavery, who defended it, how the war started, how the war progressed, and then how the war ended, and how Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. And he does it from a biblical understanding. And it's fascinating to see him go through all the things that God is accomplishing through the slaughter of America's young men. And then what God is going to accomplish through the slaughter of our president. And it's unbelievable. And what you realize as you read it is this is why America was great. Everybody from Abraham Lincoln to the professor at Princeton to the little plowboy, everybody interpreted everything that happened in our country biblically. And they saw this country is under the discipline of our Heavenly Father. Everybody saw that. Everybody interpreted Abraham Lincoln's death through God's action. Everybody saw it as God's discipline of our nation. And when Abraham Lincoln gave his second inaugural address, you read it, and he says, this 
is God requiring of our young men blood that will finally match the blood that our slave drivers have drawn from the backs of the slaves with the lash. And then we elect a president, make America great again. Okay, dude, you're on. Let's have the discipline of God. We will humble ourselves under him. And he will purify us through our suffering. And then all of a sudden, I wake up, and I'm in a Protestant church in 2017. And it's like, everybody's looking at me like I'm, I'm, I've gone insane. And I say, no, I'm just biblical. That's all. God is our father. And a father who loves his son disciplines him. Everything that comes to your life comes through the hands of God. And God makes a principle of beginning with his household. He is particularly loving to his sons and daughters. And so judgment begins in the house of God. Okay? And so would you please love your heavenly Father? Would you give yourself to him? Would you please trust God with your suffering? And would you love him more because of it? Hold precious the discipline of your heavenly Father. Because you know why? Esau, he got to the point where he was pleading for God to give him the gift of repentance. And there was no possibility. And he couldn't repent. Okay, let's pray.